Welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Unseen Histories. I'm Peter Moore. Today we're off to the 19th century to examine an event that Karl Marx called one of the most monstrous enterprises in the annals of international history. The 1860s were a decisive decade in the emergence of the modern world. As Britain's empire extended and the United States emerged entire from a debilitating civil war, an audacious French scheme to place an Austrian archduke on an invented throne in Mexico played tragically out. Today's guest tells us about this whole astonishing story. The last emperor of Mexico, Disaster in the New World, is Edward Shawcross's debut book. Widely praised, it tells the extraordinary story of Maximilian of Mexico. I spoke to Edward just the other day. Hello, Ed. Welcome to Travels Through Time. Today, we're going to talk about the story narrated in your absorbing new book, which is The Last Emperor of Mexico, which is right here before me. But first of all, I wanted to ask you a quick question about your own background as a historian and what your particular interests are. I came to this through sort of a long process of interest, actually starting with French history, 19th century French history. Uh, which I studied at school, which is a very, very long time ago now, and was intrigued by the person of Napoleon III, um, the lesser known of, of the Napoleons, um, who has a, a quite extraordinary um, political regime in the mid-19th century France. And I just remember sort of sitting in school and, and um, thinking about this, and there's this one episode where it was explained by the teacher that he invaded Mexico, but this is very much a small part of, of the course that we were studying at that point. Um, and it was just said, well, Napoleon, there was a kind of man who would spin the globe um, and, and invade wherever it stopped. And I thought well, there's probably a bit more to it than that. So when I um, then went into to academia, um, doing a master's and then a PhD, what I really then switched to focus on was Mexican history and looking at the 19th century Mexican um, story and its intellectual history and how the French intervention in the 1860s, which is what we're going, going to discuss, links up with political ideas and currents of thought in Mexico. So really combining that first interest in, in mid-19th century French history and then trying to explain why on earth France invaded Mexico um, in the mid-19th century as well, which is something that's perhaps understudied or, or not too well known, shall we say. Okay, we'll get on to that very shortly. And um, you've alluded really to the story we're going to talk about today, of course, which is the story in your book. Um, but it is a story that needs a little bit of grounding. And I thought a quite a good way of us getting into this mid-19th century world that you're evoking is to look at a few very important concepts that were underpinning intellectual thought at the time, but were really that are expressed in um, some very short phrases. The three that I have in mind, I wanted to ask you to explain to our listeners are number one, the Monroe Doctrine, um, which you write about. Number two is the idea of manifest destiny. And number three is more a descriptive term than a concept. And it's the descriptive term mm -hmm. Latin America. Could mm -hmm. you just talk about those and what they meant to someone in, say, the 1850s? 
Mm-hmm. Well, I'll start, I'll, I'll start with the Monroe Doctrine then. So this is in response to the independence of several Latin American states. So from really 1808 onwards, there's a series of conflicts um, in Latin America against the Spanish and Spanish colonialism, which it, it start off um, relatively moderate in their demands, looking for more autonomy, but then quickly as those conflicts develop and um, demand independence. And by the 1820s, most uh, Latin American nations that we would um, think of today have gained independence. The, the Monroe Doctrine is formulated in response to that because what's going to happen next? And the great fear in the United States of America is into that vacuum. It's going to, to move European imperial powers, namely France, possibly Spain will attempt some kind of um, reconquest, but potentially also um, Britain, although it's mainly uh, they're looking towards the Holy Alliance and more conservative Catholic countries. So the Monroe Doctrine, um, which is, I think it's 1823, when it's first formulated by President uh, Monroe, is to make it very clear that the, the status quo as it is, is fine. If you have to happen to have a Caribbean colony or, or whatever it is, um, that, that can stay. What cannot happen is political and military interference in the internal affairs of independent Latin American countries. So, of course, Mexico being, being a great example, um, but you know, all, all, of, all of the nations south of the United States of America. So on the one hand, you can see this, and, and this is, is, is how it is often interpreted at the time in the United States of America, as this very benevolent attempt to guarantee freedom and democracy. And of course, the governments that have emerged are Republican. They're not monarchical. Um, there's an element of, of, of democracy, however imperfectly applied. And so it's, but on the one hand, it can be seen as this um, as a sort of bastion of, of freedom and, and the so-called new world emerging as Republican and democratic into which European powers cannot interfere. Another way of looking at it, um, and it's viewed this way um, increasingly in the mid 19th century, partially because of that other term you mentioned, manifest destiny, is the United States of America is marking out a sphere of influence for hegemony, perhaps even territorial conquest. Um, and there's nothing that the European powers or indeed Latin American powers wishing to appeal to European powers for protection can do about it because of this doctrine. And the doctrine, it's, it's one of those slightly, I think to 21st century, I slightly, slightly odd in the sense that a kind of foreign policy doctrine would become such a, an important part of popular US politics. But it's something in, which is very much um, in the consciousness of, of um, in, in, as I say, in politics and presidential elections. And of course, even more so when we come on to manifest destiny, Manifest Destiny, very shortly, is, is, is the idea that the United States of America has a sort of God-given right to expand westward um, across the continent and indeed southward um, as well. If you think of the original 13 colonies, it's just the eastern um, corner of the United States of America, relatively small territory. Within 50 years, the United States of America has become a transcontinental power with access to the Pacific. The key event um, for us is, is the US-Mexican War. 1846 to 1848. Um, without going into too much detail, uh, the United States of America declares war um, on Mexico illegally um, as a border skirmish, which is um, in you know classic fashion turned into something much much uh, more uh, bigger and outrageous, seemingly to the U.S. public than it is. The United States of America declares war. This is a disaster um, for Mexico, which is um, will probably come on to discuss its politics, but has had a lot of instability since independence. Mexican army loses every battle. Uh, it fights. And um, by the end of the conflict, Mexico is forced to sign away nearly half of its national territory 
uh, to the United States of America in return for US troops leaving and $15 million, $15 million doesn't sound like a lot. And it isn't, especially when you consider that what they've signed away is, includes places like California, which today has a, a GDP, I think, that's bigger than the United Kingdom. Um, so $15 million was not a lot then. It's certainly not a lot now. And it completely transforms the geopolitical landscape of, um, of, of, of um, the entire Americas. Uh, and of course, Manifest Destiny is the, is the, sort of the, the ideas and the thought that underpins the United States of America's right to do that. And then in response to that, the final term that you, that you brought up is Latin America. And there's very, to simplify, there are sort of two strands of, of, of Latin America. So the term comes into existence in the 1850s. It's first coined in Paris. Um, and it's, there's some debate about who, who wrote it down first or who said it first. Um, but there is, a, there is one conception of it is to create a community of interest between Southern Catholic European countries and the former Spanish uh, and indeed um, Portuguese empire in Latin America in response to what is seen as um, US aggression that is very likely to continue. So if you were sitting in a cafe in 1850s Paris, which is um, you know, what we associate Paris with, and you're sort of looking at what you think the course of the next 10, 20 years is going to be, you're going to see it's more of the same. There's no reason why the United States of America is, is not going to continue to take territory from countries like Mexico and even, even beyond, right down, down to Panama is often, often the fear. And so this idea of Latin America is grouping together an, an area of interest um, with commonality of religion and of culture. Um, and crucially in this conception with France as a guide protector under sort of French hegemony and tutelage, it should just very quickly say there's another conception, um, a more radical conception by Latin American intellectuals, which of course has no place for France. And this is a, a concept of Latin America as a sort of vanguard of modernity that can um, that does have a commonality of interests, but not because of its necessarily its European origins and looking to a European protector. What both of the conceptions of Latin America have, um, and they're formulated at almost at exactly the same time, is fear of the United States of America and further US aggression. There's another character I'm going to have to ask you about at this point, because you mentioned him already. He's not quite so familiar to us, but he has a very familiar name. This is Napoleon Third, and, and his story is really intertwined with your your own that you we're going to get on to. So I think it'd be useful at this point if you explained who Napoleon III was, what kind of vision he had for the world, and, and how was he getting on at this time? Absolutely. So Napoleon III, uh, it, uh, by this point, has achieved his his life's dream, his, his ambition, which was um, to become emperor of the French, as his much more famous uncle um, Napoleon had done. And this is one of those, those... It's kind of a manifest destiny of his own, <laughs> isn't it? It is. And that, that, it is, it is. He sees it as his destiny. And he's one of those people who's absolutely convinced um, that he has a, a role to play, um, not just in French history, but in world history. Mm. So he becomes really the dynamic force in the story, which we should probably get to now, which is um, in the mid-1860s, when he really sponsors an attempt to bring... Uh, you know, kind of a monarchy or an emperor um, into Mexico. And we should probably just dwell on what Europeans thought. I know this is a very broad question, but in in the European mind, I mean, you have a very simplistic division between the old world and the new world for one. But then you have these kind of romantic stories that have come out of um, the travelling journals of Alexander von Humboldt. Um, and then I think I suppose it's a 
a general sense of a disordered region. Mexico has been through many political convulsions in its very, you know, kind of short history since independence. It's what what, what was Mexico to Napoleon III at this point? It's an excellent question. So, as you say, the, the, the writings of Alexander von Humboldt are hugely influential, and not least because those are written just before you might say that the chaos uh, is unleashed in Mexico. And so it sort of sets in stone in the European mind this idea that Mexico is enormously wealthy, because that von Humboldt details, you know, the sort of economic statistics and the mineral wealth of, of Mexico. That, to use an anachronism, by the mid-1850s, it, it's a failed state. So to give a very brief sort of um, portrait history of Mexico, what happens is it becomes independent in 1821. Importantly, um, for, for Napoleon III's vision of what Mexico is to become, it becomes independent not as a republic, as all other Latin American countries, bar um, Brazil do, but as an empire, as a monarchy. This is because the, uh, independent, one of the independence heroes, Itabide, um, he is a royalist who switches sides uh, to fight for independence and manages to unite those disparate groups um, behind a vision of a, essentially a constitutional monarchy. And he invites the King of Spain or one of his um, family members to, to take up that role as an independent monarch of Mexican uh, of, of a Mexican empire. Of course, the King of Spain, who's Ferdinand VII, is one of the, um, the more incompetent um, monarchs. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a very competitive field. Um, refuses anything short of complete reconquest of what's one of his uh, was one of his richest parts of his empire. Itabide's solution to this seemingly insoluble problem is that he has himself crowned and becomes emperor of Mexico. His reign is disastrous. It lasts nine months. Um, he's he's quickly deposed, sent into exile, uh, and he, on the mistaken belief that he'll be welcomed back as a hero, uh, he comes back in 1824 and he is executed. So in 1824, Mexico becomes a federal republic, um, but violence is much more important than the ballot box. The very first election um, for president in Mexican history um, descends into chaos and violence. And from there, there on in, most regimes last two, three years max. Um, and that's, that's quite a good innings um, for, for, for many of the Mexican presidents. There's numerous interim president regimes, revisions to constitutions, different constitutions, dictatorships. Um, and political instability really is, 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 is what people in Europe associate with Mexico and what many politicians in Mexico also associate with Mexico. We see it as something slightly laughable. In the, in the mid-19th century, it's actually it's going very well for Napoleon III, much, much better than the previous French regimes. He seems to restore France to a position of power. He's fought in the Crimean War. The economy in the 1850s is booming. So the, that doesn't seem so ridiculous to him that you might turn a republic into a monarchy. This situation that you sketched, I mean, it seems outlandish to us to today, the idea, well, maybe it isn't actually, because if you look at recent politics, similar things have happened in a way. But Napoleon III seems to be launched upon his quest by the influential group of Mexicans. The question, as you pose it early on in your book, is who is going to fill this role? If you're going to kind of inject a monarchy into a nation, you need to have um, a monarch. <laughs> and... And what better monarchical name than Habsburg? Do you want to tell us a little bit about this character who we're going to spend time with um, over the next half an hour or so, but really just introduce us to him? Because through the mind of Napoleon III in the early 1860s, there's got to be a kind of address book of people <laughs> who he's thinking, who can do this job? Yeah. And this is very much as you describe it in the book. Um, what really were the virtues of Maximilian of Austria? 
Well, um, the key virtue is one you've already touched on, uh, right? Which is his name, Habsburg. This is, um, you know, this if you're if you're going through your catalogue of, of royals, uh, this is top shelf. You know, this is the good stuff. The Habsburgs can trace their lineage right back to, into parts of the 13th century. Of course, they've had a, you know illustrious European dynasties and. Crucially, from the Mexican perspective, it's actually under Charles V Habsburg, um, um, who becomes Holy Roman Emperor, that Mexico is conquered first uh, in the name of the Spanish Empire under Hernán Cortés. It's um, so that you have that connection with Mexico. So the back, his, the Habsburg name is key, um, specifically for Ferdinand Maximilian, who is the man that is Napoleon III alights upon for this scheme to create a monarchy. Of course, you, the monarchy, you'd need a monarch, and that's why Mexican monarchists say the first one didn't work. They didn't have someone of, of, um, of, of Maximilian's lineage. He's Catholic, which, which is key. Um, but the other thing um, is as simple as the fact that he is available and he wants the job. Um, because he is a, he's a frustrated second son. It's that, it's that classic sort of trope in history from me um, to Franz Joseph. And so you, what you have is, is, is in Maximilian is, is a prince with an incredibly ambitious wife, a man who himself thinks he's destined to rule, but without any possibility of that happening in Europe, he feels betrayed and let down by his brother. He finds life in Vienna boring and dull. Um, and so if ever there was a moment where he's going to accept a far, a far away throne. Um, it's when it's brought to him by Mexican monarchists and Napoleon III in 1861. It's just such a, I mean, it's novelistic, isn't it? This idea of a slightly dissatisfied old aristocrat in a great palace overlooking the sea near Trieste with nothing to do. And I suppose that's the opening for the drama that we're going to propel ourselves into right now. So let's get into the format that we use each week. And I'll begin by asking you the question that I throw to everyone who comes on this podcast, which is, if you could travel back in time to one calendar year, which year would you pick? So I have chosen 1867 for sheer drama. The year 1867 um, can't can't be beaten and actually comes to symbolise some really important um, longer term, bigger structural um, points as well. So that's the one I've gone with. Of course, the big thing everyone knows about the 1860s in terms of um, Western history, of course, is that this is the period of the American Civil War, which is incredibly important as a, you know, kind of it's not a sideshow. It's directly involved in this because um, whether America is consumed in a battle um against itself or whether it's free to intervene is um very central to napoleon's calculation but of course it ends in may of 1865 then more importantly still perhaps is this french sponsored um enterprise should we call it Napoleon III deserts Maximilian in 1866. Mm -hmm. So these kind of set up, this is, I think, the dynamic um, of 1867. You have a very isolated emperor, mm -hmm. a long way from home. Lines of communication seem to be very poor. If I'm not mistaken, there's no real telegraphic communication by this point with Europe, is there? It's, so. just, come, it's just come in imperfectly, the transatlantic cable in 1866, and that has to go through the United States of America. So you can get a message um, 
probably within a few days up to a week. But not most communication is, as you say, is still is still by sea. And that's four to six weeks from Europe to Mexico City. He's not formally offered the crown until 1863. Um, and that is by this group of Mexican monarchists who have been defeated in civil war in Mexico, who go to Napoleon III and say, we've got this brilliant plan. Napoleon III um, agrees with them. And he sees huge advantages for France. But the military intervention, which Mexican monarchists promised would be very simple, proves much more difficult. So there is a good year and a half of hard fighting before the French army even gets to Mexico City in 1863. That's when the formal offer goes to Maximilian. He, and this is an important point to bear in mind, is um, one of the great prevaricators in life. He's a dreamer. And the idea of being uh, the, the, the emperor of Mexico is a fantastic one. And I think, you know, you probably would have all consider, consider it if that offer came in. But he realizes that in, rather than what he's been sold by Mexican monarchists and Napoleon III, which is a, a, a pacified kingdom of enthusiastic monarchists who have called him openly, he has plunged himself into a civil war um, where, whereby you know, his so-called empire uh, doesn't control a huge amount of territory, um, is constantly under attack from guerrilla forces because what has never been resolved is that, is that Mexico is a republic and it has a president and that president is Benito Juarez. Um, one of the great heroes of Mexican history. He never resigns. He never um, relinquishes office. He continues to resist the French and, the Mex and their Mexican allies right throughout this period. Now, in 1864-5, it does look like he's on the point of defeat because the French army is, 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 has 30,000 troops in Mexico. There's probably um, about another 20,000 Imperialista forces. The supporters of Maximilian are known alongside him. But as you say, that crucial turning point, 1865, US Civil War ends. Monroe Doctrine, which has been put to one side diplomatically, um, because the last thing you want in, um, is France getting involved in the US Civil War on behalf of the Confederacy. Suddenly, the United States of America is back diplomatically. Not only that, it's got the largest army it's ever had in its history that's just fought a brutal conflict um, and therefore is more than ready um, to embark on another war. Ulysses S. Grant is especially keen that the United States of America do so. So... Napoleon III is now faced with a choice, which is, do I continue to back my man in Mexico, Maximilian, or do I pull my troops out? It's incredibly expensive. He's losing men um, all, you know, every day from guerrilla attacks from Benito Juarez's forces, Juarez's as they're known. And therefore, to cut a long story short, in 1866, he pulls the plug. He says, we're going to withdraw both in terms, both our financial support and our military support. French soldiers are coming back. Now, and this may you know, have some resonance with recent military interventions. It's going to be a phased withdrawal. The troops are not coming back immediately. They're going to stay for until the end of 1867. It, it, the situation in Mexico has become so dangerous uh, for French troops that Napoleon III says, no, they all have to come at once because if we separate them into smaller groups, then they could be, um, you know, they could be picked off and they're all going to leave it by March 1867. He tells Maximilian um, that you have to abdicate. There's no, we can't guarantee your safety. And quite frankly, we think your regime is going to collapse if you stay. Maximilian nearly abdicates twice. Um, he's painfully taught out of it. And by the January 1867, after 40 days of deliberating, should I stay or should I go? He packs up his furniture. He packs up his archive. All of that is shipped to Europe. That's how close he is to leaving. He's talked out of it at the last moment by his conservative allies. Uh, in Mexico, people who die hard supporters of the monarchy, who 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 somehow managed to convince him that they can turn this situation around, despite the fact Juaristas are closing in on Mexico City. So in 1867, um, the empire is limping on. It's very much on its last legs. The French uh, are 
on the point of withdrawing completely, they're no longer fighting. And again, this is you know, parallels with, with what happened recently in Afghanistan. The French are no longer, are, are, they're merely retreating and they have an agreement essentially, which is we will, we will not engage in, with, um, with Juarista forces. And that is the point of, um, at which we, we joined Maximilian in 1867 at um, seemingly impossible odds. So he's abandoned, he's isolated. Would you say he's quite worried or do you think he is still swept away by the possibility? I mean, you you say that he was so close to leaving in the January. Does he, has has the romance like Delaquest, has he seen just how dangerous this, this kind of sequence of events that we're about to, to walk through? Has he, has he foreseen this or is he still living in his fool's paradise? It would, so it would be fair to say that his grip on reality is tenuous. He's aware of the danger. He still has confidence in his his abilities and also in his Habsburg lineage. So it's not just that he is that he thinks he can pull this off. He, he does. He also thinks he's obsessed by honor and he's obsessed by the question of what would a Habsburg do. He knows his history. He's been raised on tales of Habsburg heroism. And it's this idea that he can't abandon his post. It would be dishonorable for him to abdicate. So his, um, it's a mixture, I think, of, of optimism, delusion, um, honour, duty, um, and um, that's really where he is in, in, in 1867, beginning of 1867. So not a brilliant place to be. Okay, let's go and meet him. So uh, where, would you like to, where would you like to go? We'll give you three scenes and three opportunities to have a look at Maximilian, and uh, we'll talk through them. Where would you like to go first, please? So my first scene um, is the 13th of February, and it begins in Mexico City. Uh, outside the National Palace. Uh, and here we meet Maximilian for the first time. So it's 7am in the morning. He's coming out the National Palace, which is a huge, wide, austere building in the great central square of Mexico City, which if anyone's been to Mexico City, is you know, still one of the largest public squares in the world. Um, and it dominates one side of that square, adjacent to the enormous looming Gothic cathedral. So Maximilian comes out of his palace and in the courtyard, in this main square, there's, um, there are some of his soldiers. Now, these men are actually foreign volunteers. And they are um, they're waiting to speak to Maximilian, especially the commanding officers, because rumours have been abounding about what's going to happen next. Juaristas, the forces of Benito Juarez, are closing in on all of the, the few imperialist strongholds, including the capital. There have been rumours of a campaign, but it's been great secrecy. Um, and so the soldiers are being called into the courtyard to receive um, Maximilian. I say courtyard, it's an enormous um, plaza. As he comes out, he explains what the plan is and what he says to them shocks them. He is going to go on campaign. The plan is to lead what remains of the Imperialista army to a town called Carretero, which is about 130 miles northwest of uh, Mexico City. There are other Imperialista forces there. Um, uh, there are Juarista armies closing in on them. And the plan is um, to engage the, those, those armies, defeat Juarez, and this will restore faith in the empire. No longer shackled by the French and foreign intervention because the French troops are leaving. This will be Mexican troops led by the emperor, defeating the forces of Benito Juarez. So that's the plan. Why these troops are shocked is because these troops are not Mexican. These troops are Maximilian's foreign volunteers. They've sworn an oath of allegiance directly to the emperor to protect his person. Um, and they are really the elite soldiers that remain to Maximilian. So it's surprising that he's not going to take them with him. They are, they've been trained. They're veterans of Habsburg Wars. 
But Maximilian says, I am going to fight in the name of Mexican nationalism. And in order to fight in the name of Mexican nationalism, I must fight with my Mexican troops. So the foreign volunteers are absolutely distraught. They've, they've sworn this oath of allegiance to Maximilian, but he, he orders them that they must garrison Mexico City and he will go with his Mexican troops. So he now, with a very small entourage and one or two Mexican officers, he mounts, mounts his horse, rides through the streets of Mexico City to meet up with this army that he himself is going to command and lead um, uh, and, and against the Juaristas. Now I say army, it's about 1500 strong. Part of the reason he stayed was because his Mexican allies said, we are going to get tens of millions um, of, of pesos, which is it's the same equivalent of the US dollar at the time. So for comparison in terms of money, we're going to get um, you know tens of thousands of troops. He's got 1500 troops and $50,000 to pull off this great, this great comeback for the empire. Not only that, these troops are mostly press ganged off the streets of Mexico City a few weeks before, and they're still in the clothes that they've been seized from. Some of them not even armed, armed with muskets, rifles, whatever. So this is a, a ragtag army. It looks more like a, a badly armed crowd uh, than an army when Maximilian rides to meet them at the gates of the northern gates of Mexico City. Instead of his foreign volunteers, he's got two men with him who are going to play an important role. He's got uh, Leonardo Marquez. Marquez is uh, he's a very good general, very devout Christian. He's been fighting for the Catholic Church, which is one of the causes that Maximilian was supposedly called to defend, and another man called uh, Miguel Lopez. Uh, Lopez is, is one is um, unlike the rest of the much of the rest of the army. is a very effective soldier, and he's a very loyal lieutenant of Maximilian. In fact, so much so that Maximilian is godfather to one of his children. And Lopez leads a regiment called the Empress's Regiment, which is an elite body of cavalry, um, such as remains in, in um, available to Maximilian. So this army sets off 130 miles northwest to um, Caratero. Uh, as I say. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about Maximilian in, in person because we haven't actually described him and I think it might be useful for, for our listeners to kind of get an idea of um, him as a as a physical creature. And he is interesting and this is of course the early years of photography. So he is, um, he is there for us in the archive and you describe him as well as a impressive figure, tall for the time, around six feet with fair complexion, blue eyes, prominent sideburns, um, blondish hair. He's got this forked beard, which is quite peculiar. If you, I mean, that's the the thing that I think mm -hmm. probably distinguishes him um, immediately to our modern eye. Um, is he? Does he have a kind of charismatic air of leadership? I know from his earlier life, you did, you talk about when he was serving in the Austrian Navy, um, that he was very much liked by his men. That he was seen as um, someone of fibre, and um, he had a certain military aptitude. Is 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 any of that present in this scene? In one sense, which is you're right, he has he does have a charisma, and his ability to to win over um, supporters and instill loyalty in his men is is striking, and and you really see that in 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 in, in the, these moments, where and especially in that in that scene in the main square of Mexico City, where he, these officers who have you know they've sworn an oath of allegiance to him, they've come out to Mexico to fight for him, and um, they're willing to die for him, um, and and they are absolutely devoted to him. As are many of his closest entourage, he's able to win over one of the people who's going to come on this journey with him is a Mexican politician called Santiago uh, Vidari, 
Vidari is, is a liberal, so not from the traditional um, demographic you'd expect Maximilian's supporters to come from. And he's a man that Maximilian has charmed and brought into his entourage. And even at this low ebb, when many of other Maximilian's other supporters have deserted him, he stays with the with the emperor and is going to go with him on the, on this um, you know to to fight this campaign. So he does have that, but as with Maximilian, he's just a man, he's a man full of contradictions. So the other thing to bear in mind is that Maximilian has never served in an army, let alone commanded an army. He's a naval officer, so he's not without military experience. But I'm I'm no military man myself, but I, I imagine that uh, you know if a naval officer turns up and says, well, don't I'll lead the army. Um, many, many people um, in the army would probably think, hmm, is this the best man for the job? And he is indecisive and he prevaricates. And that is not necessarily going to be the, um, the qualities that you're looking for in a leader, particularly in uh, a plan which requires everything to come off, everything to be very decisive uh, and to sort of essentially defeat three separate Far Easter armies through quick manoeuvring and military expertise. So it's a a combination of the two. He does have this exceptional loyalty. The troops, um, such as they are, um, are, seem to, as far as we can tell, they they respond well. He makes several kind of stirring speeches on the march. But equally, is he a man who should be leading this army at this time? It's a question that um, you think as a historian you'd be asking yourself. And is it this day then that he has his first taste of combat after all these years of preparation? Absolutely right. Yeah. So um, he this this just goes to show how precarious the empire is. So this is we we started at seven a.m. We're only at eleven a.m. now. First stop um, is a stop for breakfast. Um, Maximilian has champagne, which I think is probably one of the few benefits of having a French-backed regime. Is the freely flowing champagne. Um, it's a local parish priest, a village just you know perhaps ten miles outside of Mexico City, the capital of his empire. And it's at this point that the vanguard of his force runs into Arista guerrilla forces. Um, so shots are heard in the distance. Champagne quickly downed, um, then, and the, and the column begins it, its march um, onwards. Half an hour later, the the, the, the full guerrilla attack begins. Two to three hundred cavalry. Um, attacked its column, and it's worth bearing in mind that this is this is not a sort of beautiful parade ground military um, convoy. This is, um, as I say, ragtag soldiers press ganged off the streets, not marching in step. The artillery lumbering slower behind, and as is the the custom in, and tradition in Mexico, camp followers, women and children, even further behind. The surrounding territory is controlled not by the Mexican Empire, but by Juarista guerrilla forces, and they see this as a brilliant opportunity. Now, they don't have the numbers to overwhelm the column, but they, their hope is you either capture or kill the emperor. As soon as the attack begins, though, Maximilian does show some of that leadership and charisma. He gallops to the front of the column to survey the scene. Um, he has a telescope. It is a naval telescope, um, as you'd expect, but um, nonetheless, he uses it as a field glass, and hence he's surveying the field uh, in front of him, suddenly a bullet smashes in to one of the soldiers who's just three paces away from him. So he's right in the line of fire. Um, and his personal physician, his doctor, and Samuel Bash, has performed sort of an emergency um, field operation. And that's the first time that he's ever been involved in this in this kind of thing. Um, after about uh, sort of hit and run tactics of the guerrillas, you've probably got two, two, two and a half hours of, of fighting, skirmishing, firing. They, they will attack retreat fire from um you know from from the hilly um hilly undergrowth or behind trees they are eventually beaten off and we'll see another quality here which maximilian is famed for personally and again it shows the contradictions because it's slightly lost in the in the wider picture is that one of the guerrillas who's, who's attacked is found hiding in a ditch you know his sort of neck up to water um hoping that the column will, will ride past and he's sort of found you know rifle rifle in hand so that he would he would have been executed under the laws of the empire but maximilian 
uh, grants him, um, you know, amnesty and says, you know, no, we shouldn't execute prisoners. And he, whenever he's personally involved in a situation like this, he, he absolutely does intervene. It is just worth pointing out that he has signed um, a decree which results in the summary execution of people um, found in ditches with weapons in their hands. So on the personal level, yes, you do have this, this, this clemency. But he is part of a regime that has been very much involved in a brutal civil war in Mexico. So one shouldn't get too carried away with that. The, the, the plan is to, is to march to a nearby town, um, and which, which they get to that very evening. And Maximilian is ebullient. He's, he's excited. He's, he's talking about the day's action, about how calm everyone is under fire. His personal secretary, a man of letters, um, he's, he's, he commends for showing great bravery. He's in good spirits. So he thinks that the convoy is going to get through to its destination. He thinks that they've shown militarily that they can handle themselves. They've beaten off this guerrilla attack. And then the final thing that gives him hope is that in that very, that, that, that evening, just after he's had dinner, um, reinforcements arrive from Mexico City. So a small party, uh, Vidal, who I mentioned earlier, and, and, uh, and a few others, uh, were delayed in their departure. They, they come to join with Maximilian. And um, because of you know, how dangerous it is, even only 10, 20 miles outside of Mexico City, they have an escort. And that escort can, in, in comprises a few foreign, foreign, foreign volunteers. So these are, these are men um, who Maximilian had told to stay behind, but they're, made, they're able to fudge it and say, well, we, you know, you know Vidal is an important politician. We couldn't have left him unescorted. And key amongst those is a man called Sam Sam, Sam a German-Prussian officer who becomes very close with Maximilian over the next few months. So they're heading to Querétaro. Is this where your second scene is going to take place then? So we are now in the town of Querétaro, which is, um, as, I, as I said, 130 miles northwest of Mexico City. And it's the 15th of May, 1867. And we're inside the convent of Santa Cruz, uh, which has become the headquarters of Maximilian's army for this campaign that uh, he was, uh, as we left off, he was, he was about to embark upon. How is he faring at this point? I know that campaigns across Mexico are very difficult. You, right from the beginning of the French intervention, you talk about disease being a, a kind of constant worry. We know that Maximilian himself is used to, uh, you know, kind of quite a degree of comfort and luxury. How is he getting on by May? So we left, we left off, Maximilian was um, confident about his chances of success. Uh, that confidence now is waning. He has been under siege for uh, just over 70 days in this, in this town. It's relatively, Cretro is relatively, um, relatively large, relatively important town in Mexico. Cretro, it's, it's, a, it's a town of about 30,000 inhabitants. Um, the journey to get there was difficult, but Maximilian made it. Um, and He's now linked up with about nine to 10,000 um, soldiers in total for the Imperial Easter Corps. Now, the town um, is surrounded on three sides by hills, uh, and then to the west is an open plain. And th that's going to be important because there are three Juarista armies bearing down on Maximilian when he arrives there in, in early March. Um, now, the, the plan was to defeat these armies separately, one by one. Um, you, you go out and you, there, there's a chance of success, or at least that was the plan that some of his generals advised him. Um, Marquez, who we mentioned, um, is, is on, is, is on the, had been on the journey with him, says, no, we need to wait and we'll wait for reinforcements from Mexico City. 
Maximilian prevaricates. He loves a, a, anyone who tells him to wait. That's what we're going to do. So they wait. And of course, what happens is the three Juarista armies unite and begin to a siege before reinforcements from Mexico City arrive. Um, and therefore, Maximilian, at the beginning of March, and his army of about 9,000, people is under siege from an army of roughly 30,000. Um, so the odds are not looking good. Uh, what happens up to up to May, um, is, very briefly though, is um, initially they're not too worried uh, because Marquez, who we mentioned earlier, is able to break out very quickly uh, with about a thousand men um, in order to go back to Mexico City and bring those foreign volunteers that Maximilian ordered to stay uh, behind a garrison the city. Uh, and the fact that they can just they slip through the Far Eastern um, lines with no problem um, seems to suggest that, you know, okay, we're, we're under siege, but reinforcements will come, and, you know, as and when we, we, we will have this battle that will sort of decide the fate of the empire. Now, it's meant to take two weeks to get these forces together and come back to, um, to, to relieve Maximilian and his besieged army. As the weeks tick on, obviously, confidence um, begin, begins to wane. Um, and by the time we get to May, it's become apparent that that relief force is never coming. What Marquez has instead done is he spied an opportunity to advance his own cause and that of the empire and relieve another city that's under siege, Puebla, which is um, towards Veracruz, the opposite direction of um, Cretero. And he has been catastrophically defeated in that relief attempt. He has managed, again, with the heroism of the foreign volunteers, and very crucial to this, the ones that Maximilian didn't take with him, um, to make to make a retreat back to Mexico City. He himself is now besieged in Mexico City. So the relief force is itself under siege. There's no relief coming. Um, it takes a long time for this information to reach Maximilian, um, not least because they're under siege. But when it does, they decide um, that the only way is to, is to break out. There's a failed attempt at the end of April where they do punch a hole through the Juarista lines, but in, they... Uh, very slow in following that up. And by the time they begin to march um, to, you know, up, up the hill that they've managed to uh, defeat the Juarista forces, reinforcements come, that escape route is closed off. But again, the fact that they were able to do that relatively easily, things, so we can just repeat that plan. Now, the problem by the 14th of May, which is where we now join um, Maximilian the night before the 15th, is that all of those problems you associate with the siege are kicking in. Starvation, lack of munitions, um, uh, morale is, is collapsing, uh, desertion is rife, they're losing 10, 20 people a day. And you know they've only got about six, 7,000 people left um, to, to hold on to this town. So the decision is made, we must, we must, we must break out. In fact, um, I, I've, I've got us on the 15th. That decision is actually made on the 13th. And by now, listeners won't be surprised to learn that that decision is delayed not once but twice. Um, not not by Maximilian. Um, his generals request it, but of course, as I say, if um, if he can postpone things, he will. So when we pick up with this scene, it's in the convent of uh, Santa Cruz, which is um, in 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 the heart of the city. It's been fortified and it's the headquarters. There's a council of war set for, um, the, the night before 10 p.m. discussing the breakout plan. Um, that's where it's delayed. It's meant to be the early hours of the 15th, but it's delayed until the next evening. Still on the 15th. At 11 p.m., um, once that has dispersed, Maximilian then brings Miguel Lopez. If you remember, Lopez is um, uh, he is one of Maximilian's most loyal lieutenants. Brings him into into his room, which is a you know a former cell for um, for nuns. Very small room, and Maximilian rewards him a medal for bravery for his conduct during the siege. And he says, "When we break out tomorrow evening, if it looks like I'm to be captured, I want you to put a bullet through me. Make sure that I'm not taken alive." And these are the last words that, um, that, he, that he says to Lopez. 
At 1 a.m., um, you know, obviously it's quite hard to sleep in a siege. I'm always quite, quite amazed that they do manage to get any sleep. He goes to bed. But as I mentioned earlier, Maximilian, he's suffering from dysentery. He has terrible fevers and stomach cramps, really painful stomach cramps. So he summons his doctor. His doctor administers some um, um, pain relief in the form of opium pills, um, which I'm sure combined with, with the hunger, the champagne and the fever is probably not making the decision-making process um, brilliant. And it's not until 3.30 in the morning in this convent that Maximilian finally is able to, to go to sleep. At 5 a.m., and here the sources differ, uh, either Lopez or one of Lopez's subordinates burst into the room of Maximilian's doctor, uh, who we, we left off administering opium pills to Maximilian. Lopez shouts that the convent um, is, is under attack, that the enemy has broken into the gardens uh, and that's in battle stations. Bash then runs to find Sound Sound, the Prussian military officer, uh, who's also now part of Maximilian's close entourage and a few other Mexican officers, um, to go and wake up Maximilian and tell him we need to escape because as, as we speak, the enemy is circling um, it's, it's the convent and, and cutting off the escape routes. Maximilian is already awake. He's very calm, actually, and he explains to his doctor, he says, don't worry, I know what's happened. The enemy have broken in, but it's going, it's going to be fine. Um, so he quickly throws on uh, you know, his military great coat, uh, gets, gets two revolvers and gets his saber and this small group of people sort of marching out the convent as the enemy is, is closing in on them. Um, and they get out into the courtyard of the convent, but it seems like it's too late. Um, the the Arista soldiers and officers have taken the courtyard and as they try to leave through one of the gates, uh, an officer stops them, looks over them, and then extraordinarily says, are oh, these people are citizens? let them pass. So it seems as though they've not been they've not been recognized in the chaos and confusion because by now of course people have realized that um, that, that that there are troops inside the town and fighting is breaking out sort of desperate rearguard actions. Maximilian is determined and again as one could talk that that, that charisma that heroism that seems to he seems to find in these last um, last last few months of leading his army he's going to make a last stand and he's going to go to a place called the Hill of the Bells which overlooks the, the, the town to the west um, and there make a last stand. It's fortified, it has artillery on it and it has troops on it. And it's a great place, of course, to direct, direct the, the battle that he thinks is, um, is about to take place. Now, it's about a 20, uh, 20 minute walk, brisk walk across the town for them to get there. Um, and on the way, he finds um, he, he, he bumps into Miguel Lopez again on horseback, who says, you know, your majesty, the town is falling. Uh, we must hide you. Uh, and, um, you know, that way perhaps we can spare your life. To which Maximilian retorts, never, you know, I, we will go to the Hill of the Bells and we will carry on fighting. Um, and um, Lopez at that point doesn't come with them. He, 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 he goes off. We'll, we'll find him later. We get just to this hill, which is, it's a very slow, sort of gentle, undulating slope. It's not, it's not a huge, um, you know, thing, thing that, um, it, it's sort of a huge hill overlooking the town. But, it, you know, it's, it's a significant um, incline which they're walking up. At this point, um, it's clear where they're going. The Juaristas are directing their fire on Maximilian and his officers. One of the Maximilian's Mexican officers stumbles and he has to pick him up and sort of carry, carry him with one of his other um, officers um, between the two of them as shells are raining down. And they get to the top of the hill where Maximilian is determined to make this last stand. Of course, he can see the town below him, which is swarming with Juaristas. And there is some resistance from his imperialist forces, but they're surrendering all around him. Three separate artillery batteries, and um, some of them artillery batteries that were imperialista, and now the Republicans and the Juaristas have now taken control of open fire on this hill. Um, 
And this is just as dawn is breaking as well. So you can, you can sort of imagine the drama, the shells um, raining down around Maximilian, who remains remarkably calm under fire. At this point, his closest, his closest uh, officers and friends, um, they suggest that what, you know, what he's actually looking for is a glorious death. Uh, he says to one of his best generals, Mejia, um, who's um, one of his cavalry commanders, is there any way we can break through? He asks him a number of times, and Mejia says, I, I don't care for my own life. Um, but I'm not going to lead you to certain death. You know, there are thousands of troops that they would have to cut their way through. It's not going to happen. Um, and so Maximilian realizes that, that the game is up. He sends one of his officers down on horseback with a white flag to surrender. He burns two pieces of, um, of paper and two documents that he doesn't want to fall into the enemy's hands. Uh, and eventually the firing ceases. Quarista forces come up um, to escort him down into the plane and to meet the commanding officer. The commanding officer of the Juaristas is a guy called uh, Mariano Escobedo. Escobedo is, um, you know, he's a good Republican liberal who's grown up in the sort of harsh Sierras of Northern Mexico from a very ordinary family. And it's to this man that the Habsburg um, Archduke, so-called Emperor of Mexico, hands his sword uh, and surrenders. A few things. First of all, we are in a period of history where you know before the Geneva Convention, for example, what what awaited an act of surrender? Did he know that death was kind of inevitability, or did he have some expectation that because he was someone of standing, that he was to be treated under some kind of um, ancient code of noblesse oblige, that he would be, I don't know, put on a ship and set sail for Europe? and um, don't do that again. He's aware that death might be a possibility, but he, he expects to be, um, to, to likely to be, um, to worst case scenario, be imprisoned, but likely to be sent in exile to Europe. Yeah, he absolutely thinks that, um, first of all, he's, he's offered that, and he, he said, you know, I'm very willing to do that. Um, and, and the other thing, of course, is that if you think of the 19th century um, heads of state, and of course, whether he is a head of state is, is exactly the, con the, the, the contested point, um, tend not to be executed. Uh, Napoleon, of course, famously exiled twice, uh, despite having the entire of Europe reigned against him. And the more opposite example, although you know, this hasn't been played out yet with certainty, is Jefferson Davis in the United States of America, um, who, of course, you know, led the president of the Confederacy. He's imprisoned and then he's eventually um, amnestied. He's not executed. Um, despite you know the, the grossest act of treason that one could possibly imagine in, in those terms, so Maximilian is fairly confident that yeah he he will um, he will be either um, imprisoned um, um, but best case scenario exiled. He does off what he always says: if there must be a victim, then let it be me and let everyone else go. So he's not unaware um, as to um, the potential um, uh, prospect of capital punishment. He, he does he, he he expects to be released. And also in this like really fascinating geographic kind of um, forum for events, mm. it, th it feels like a, a theatrical setting for something like this. It's almost an amphitheatre with, with the three hills on each side. And of course, Maximilian making his last stand on, on, on the Hill of the Bells itself um, and being able to sort of see the town falling um, in real time must have been quite a moment. Yeah. Yeah, really, really panoramic. And... Um, and and then at the heart of it, this this act of surrender with the, the sword being given over. So yeah, absolutely compelling. Hi there, it's Peter here. Unseenhistories.com is now three months old, and already it is packed full of enticing, illuminating, and excellently presented 
historical material. If you give the site a visit today, you'll see many beautifully illustrated excerpts of books that we've featured on Travels Through Time. There's excerpts from Malcolm Gaskell's Ruin of All Witches, Nigel Pickford's Samuel Pepys and the Strange Wrecking of the Gloucester, and Gary Shaw's Egyptian Mythology, along with many others as well. For those of you who like maps, you might want to check out the utterly compelling series of pieces on the Battle of Fredericksburg in 1862. That was a crucial moment in the American Civil War, along with a range of fabulously colourised images from Jordan Lloyd. It really is history for our times. Unseenhistories.com Let's let's move on to your third scene then, which I think brings this little um, final escapade to its conclusion. Absolutely. So we're, we're still um, in Queretaro and we are um, going to end up on the exact same hill where Maximilian surrendered. But before we do, we're in a, another convent. Um, uh, Queretaro is full of... Part of the reason why Maximilian went there is because it's a very religious town full of convents and churches. Uh, and by this point, that's really his constituency is, is, is the sort of rural, well, not rural because of course it's a town, but sort of that deeper Catholic um, uh, Mexico. He's, he's, a, he's in prison um, and we're on um, the 19th of June, 1867. We left him surrendering and hopeful that his life would be spared. Um, that's not the case uh, at all. He, he's, he is put on trial, but it's, it's, a, it's you know, it's, it's, it's little more than political theatre. In fact, it's actually held in a theatre, the trial. And the theatre is named after the first emperor of Mexico, um, Itabide, who listeners who've been paying attention will remember was, was actually executed in 1824. It's a court-martial. He's tried not under civilian law, but under a law passed in 1862 by Benito Juarez, which essentially said anyone who is caught in the act of helping the French intervention, which is, you know, the, and, the, and the regime change which that brought, is guilty and, they, and that there'll be, um, you know, punishment is death. And there's nothing, you know, Maximilian is the principal agent of that French intervention. You know, there's there's no defence to, to that to that court martial. He's, he's tried by junior officers um, and, and you know, there's only really going to be one outcome. There have been great hopes for a pardon, um, not least because every single government, um, you know, from the United States of America to Britain um, to, to, to France weighs in. Uh, Garibaldi um, writes a letter, Victor Hugo writes a letter um, to Juarez, you know, um, pleading for clemency. So there is great hope that he, that he will be pardoned, um, but Juarez is determined to end this conflict that has been raging in Mexico really since, since 1858, and you could argue since independence, um, between different visions. Maximilian is in prison with two other men, uh, one we've already mentioned, Mejia. Mejia is one of the generals that refused to, to, to have a suicidal breakout. Uh, he's from uh, indigenous people in Mexico, um, and he is someone who has been fighting for um, the Imperial Easter cause uh, with unswerving loyalty, deeply religious, um, and represents a sort of popular brand of Catholicism amongst indigenous peoples. He's also got um, uh, another general with him, Miguel Miramon. Miramon is um, he's, he's a Creole, which means that he's descended from, from, from European Spaniards in Mexico, and he represents another form of conservatism in, in Mexico that Benito Juarez has been fighting against, which is sort of the, the sort of landed and titled people. So he's in, he's in prison with these two Mexican generals who've been tried with him, and they've been condemned to death. And today is the day, the 19th of June, of his execution. I think even people who don't really know the details of the story might have had a glimpse of this execution because it was really captured, wasn't it, in um, 
if if maybe not in authentic historical detail, but at least in the historical imagination of Europe by um, by a work of art, which I'll let you talk about if you like. Or maybe you'd like to talk about the historical circumstances of what actually happened yeah. first. That might be... <laughs> that might uh, we'll, be we'll, lead, we'll lead him out of his prison to, to, to the Hill of the Bells and then we can bring in the um, the, the, yeah, the, the Manet painting, which you're referencing. So he's, he's condemned to death. Um, he goes to bed and I always just think this is extraordinary. Uh, he manages to fall asleep the night before at 10 p.m. I don't know how I would be feeling the, 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 the night before my execution. I always remember it, you know, the day you had to go back to school. Um, it was always quite hard to sleep because he didn't want to go back to school. Um, I feel like the day before your execution would not be the most restful night. He manages to fall asleep. Um, but at 11.30 p.m. Um, the, the day before, he, he's woken up by the commanding officer, Escobedo, the man who he surrendered to, um, who wants to bid him farewell. And I think just how annoying would that be if you had actually managed to fall asleep before the night before your execution and then someone comes in to wake you up to say goodbye? Um, so that, that's the sort of final economy, I think, that he has to deal with. Um, he's, whether he is actually asleep after that or, or not, um, who knows? So his doctor says that he is, who, who's, who's the person who's, who's with him. Um, and, and writes a memoir about it. So he wakes up at 3.30 a.m. Um, he hears mass with his two, two, two generals, uh, Miramon and Mejia. Breakfast, um, quarter to six, his final breakfast. This is coffee, chicken, half a glass of red wine. I think I probably would have wanted a, a, a bit more of the wine for this final moment and some bread. And it's at that point, just about six o'clock, um, just after six o'clock, that three black closed carriages come to take Maximilian to the site of execution. And the site of execution is going to be the Hill of the Bells, that same place where he surrendered um, um, just over a month ago. He's incredibly calm uh, and, and stoic and brave, I suppose the word would be, in these final moments. He, he walks to the place of execution. Um, he has some, some stirring last words, which he speaks very clearly and very loudly in Spanish. Um, and he'd actually had a conversation with the Prussian uh, ambassador uh, or minister, diplomatic minister, the day before. It's another really good um, talking about sources. One of the, the few people who actually witnesses the execution and leaves an account is the Prussian um, uh, for want of a better word, ambassador. He's, he's a diplomatic minister. And Maximilian had told him he was ready to die. Um, he'd heard false, false, as it turned out, rumours that his wife, Carlotta, had died. And so he said, you know, that there's, you know, sort of paraphrase, there's nothing left for me in this world, but you know, I will join her in the next. Uh, and the other thing that he says is that he'd always wanted to die on a, on a beautiful cloudless day, which it is in, uh, at this time. The sun is just rising um, as he looks up from, from, from the Hill of the Bells. Now, the famous depiction of this is, as you say, is by Edouard Manet, and it's his painting, The Execution of Maximilian. In terms of, of how the execution actually plays out, the, the painting um, has one or two factual inaccuracies. So Maximilian is not in the centre. Um, he's actually on the right from the point of view of the execution of the firing squad. There's also a, a firing squad for each prisoner as well. So it's not, uh, it's not the three, four, five men or whatever is in, is in that um, painting, um, but each each prisoner who's going to be executed at the same time has five men each, I think it is, for the execution. Uh, also, Maximilian is not wearing a sombrero. His final moments, he, he, um, he gives some money to the executioners. He tells them to aim at his heart. Um, Mihir doesn't say anything. Mihir's very sick, actually, um, and, and chooses not to have his final say. And it's actually Miramon, whose words are the final ones that are spoken after Maximilian. Maximilian then stares straight at uh, the firing squad, um, glances up at the sky and 
the order is given to fire and he falls falls down and, and dies um, almost instantly. There are sort of various apocryphal accounts of him uh, doing various things, but um, it's it's very unlikely it's that he was hit by um, five or six bullets through the torso and that the death would have been pretty in instant. His doctor says one of them went straight through the heart and pierced the atrium. So any anything anything beyond if you, there are sort of all kinds of legends that arise from it, um, and and that's you know that's a, the, the, the tragic end. Um, of the story and the final scene it, it literally is the end of Maximilian and, and indeed the Mexican em Empire which of course dies with its emperor mm. is this a tragedy is it a farce how do you look back at this now as a story um it's, with a bit of you know you've come to the end of a long period of research do you think there's any kind of valor to be had of the Habsburgs who um he were like kind of so strongly in Maximilian's mind throughout his mm -hmm. lineage, what he was trying to do, or do you think this was just a mis a misguided moment? Um, because people at this time in the mid nineteenth century, in an age of empires, were were playing out their ambitions on the most ridiculously go global mm. scale. You know, you could send someone to Asia and they'd come back with a country, or they they might do the same in South America. It's it's, it's is it a moment in history? What do you think? It's a, it's such a good question. I think it's really hard to divorce the the, the personal um, from the much wider um, points that you're making there of, of the history. So it's a personal tragedy, and you you're spending so much time with Maximilian, reading his his writings, how he engaged himself. Um, it's you know it's it's un, it's undoubtedly a sad moment um, to, that, that for him personally. He's isolated. He's alone. He makes a lot of bad decisions. But from Benito Juarez's point of view, in this, he's a usurper who's, who's, I mean, he's not a usurper because there's no throne to steal. I mean, he's part of an outrageous uh, French imperial project of regime change. Um, Benito Juarez had been elected president in 1861, you know, the very year that um, Napoleon III decides to invade Mexico and Mexican monarchists offer Maximilian the throne. There was no throne to be offered. Uh, and so I suppose, uh, for want of a better word, Maximilian should have done a lot more due diligence. He was swept along by the romance of it. He believed in his um, Habsburg um, destiny and that he would be able to rule Mexico as a sort of liberal, enlightened, benevolent monarch. But for most people in Mexico, that he would never be that. He would be someone who had illegally seized the throne um, with the support of French bayonets. So there is the, the personal tragedy of Maximilian, I think, has to be put in that wider context, not just of um, French imperialism, but also the heroic resistance of Benito Juarez, who's in many ways the, the hero of this story, um, and maintaining at times against seemingly impossible odds, in some respects, many much worse than Maximilian's final stand. I mean, there's a point where Juarez is sort of down to about two, three hundred men on the border with the United States of America about to be captured by French troops. So you, you, I think it's really important that you, that you, although it's very easy to be caught up in, in the personal with Maximilian, to put it in that wider perspective, as you say, of, of European imperialism and, and Republican resistance in, in Mexico and not get too carried away um, with, with, with the tragedy of it. Yeah. Before I let you escape from this yourself, you're going to escape from this interview um, in, in better condition than Maximilian escaped from Mexico, that's for sure. I'm going to give you the opportunity to take one tangible memento back from the year 1867. What would you like if you could have one thing to bring back and perhaps have as a reminder of the story for yourself? I think so. As Maximilian is walking um, his final steps, he's, car he's carrying a, a, a silver crucifix um, 
which you know, to, to, to represent his piety and his belief in Catholicism. And I think it's slightly macabre um, uh, memento to or vignette to have from the period. But it's uh, it's just such I was sort of imagining in my mind such a striking image, and he's dressed in black, and he's got he's carrying this this crucifix to his um, to, to 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 meet his fate. Um, and it would just be something an extraordinary object, I think. Yeah, something to something to ponder upon as you glance yes. at it indeed <laughs> well this this has been like really enjoyable thank you for the wonderful descriptions and congratulations again on the last emperor of mexico which is um a really 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 great account of an extraordinary episode in 19th century history edward shawcross thank you very much for coming on travels free time absolute pleasure thank you so much for having me i've really enjoyed speaking to you that was me peter moore talking to edward shawcross about his captivating new book the last emperor of mexico a disaster in a new world will soon be published in hardback by faber as ever there's much much more about this episode on tttpodcast.com but for now that's it thank you very much for listening <laughs>